to the end of Matthew. <clears throat> the book of Matthew chapter <clears throat> 28. <clears throat> and I am on the tail end of my cold. I still think I have about a week of it left, so <clears throat> Lord willing, uh, it'll be much better in about a week. Matthew chapter <clears throat> 28. And we're going to read, for sake of review, verses 16 through 20. <clears throat> Our message this morning is dealing with that phrase in verse 19, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 28. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, <clears throat> to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spake to them, saying, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, or behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We've been looking at this commission for the past several weeks, and we've noted that the commission is the means by which God's eternal purpose, as it's given in Ephesians 1, is to be fulfilled in every generation, and we could add this, through the church of Jesus Christ. The imperative here in this commission, in verse 19, the command is to make disciples of all the nations. So therefore, it is the pattern of the New Testament that the making of disciples of all the nation occurs by the proclamation of the gospel of Christ. Amen. It's through that gospel that makes disciples. And if that gospel is proclaimed properly and accurately, and if that gospel works powerfully in a person's life, what it does is it brings about a rebirth and it makes them a disciple. Amen. A disciple is a learner follower yes. of Jesus Christ. Yes. They're not just learners. And as I mentioned last Wednesday night, the mark of maturity is not the fact that we learn a lot of things. Learning is the start, but maturity is marked by our following Him in the things of which we have learned. And so the commission operates in a church for these things to be occurring. And so we manifest, note verse 19, we go and as a church into our local community purposefully for the purpose of making disciples, and those who are made disciples through the proclamation of the gospel manifest their discipleship 
by being baptized and being taught to observe all that Christ has commanded. When a disciple confesses Christ in baptism, what they are doing is identifying with the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is local New Testament assemblies. Now when we get to glory, that church universal will be gathered together for the very first time. But that assembly has not occurred. Christ has ordained His lampstands. And when we are being taught to observe all that Jesus commanded, not only are we identifying with the body of Christ, the church, we're identifying with His voice. And that voice is given to us in the Scripture. Now all of that is review. And the pull by which we are to proclaim that gospel, the pull by which we are to make disciples is all nations. Regardless of ethnicity, regardless of nationality, regardless of gender, regardless of age, when we proclaim the gospel, what we're doing is not targeting a demographic, but we are taking the net, as it were, and we're just casting it out there broadly. And when we bring that net in, yes, there will be false professions of faith, bad fish, but there will also be good fish that the Lord has worked in their life. So every church should be going with the purpose of making disciples, and every believer in that assembly is to be doing what Peter urged us to do, and that is confessing and proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. Every one of us. As we get to know Him, and as we behold the beauty and glory of His face in the pages of the Scripture, our mouths open up because we talk about what we're excited about. And as we are excited about Him, then we proclaim His name and His excellencies. This brings us this morning in this series on the commission of Christ on this topic, verse 19, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Some eight years ago, I gave an extended several Lord's Day presentation and detailed presentation of scriptural baptism. That's not up on the web, but if you're interested in that, we definitely have it in our own church archives and I can certainly get that to you, but I give that to you, but I certainly want to go over some things that we taught during that series. Now when we talk about baptism, verse 19, and we talk about teaching to observe, I do think that it's important for us to know that baptism and teaching to observe are not the means by which people are made disciples, but they are characteristics of those who are disciples. Having been made a disciple through the proclamation of the gospel, 
that discipleship is manifested by their attaching themselves to local New Testament assemblies. They identify with the body of Christ by baptism. And they humble themselves and submit themselves to learn all that Christ has commanded and to be transformed by that and then to walk therein. And when you have a group of people in a church where that is their one thing they're doing, it is transformational. Now, we've got to know that this characterizes disciples. And I want us to turn back to our scripture reading, Acts chapter 2, that we had earlier on in the service. And I want us to note this. Peter is preaching. This is the day that the Holy Spirit comes and fills the church. He's poured out upon the church. And the church is empowered. And it is empowered to go and stand and proclaim the gospel of Christ. And you see that power in a man like Peter who just a week earlier, a few days earlier, had denied the Lord three times. And now the Holy Spirit comes to them, empowering them to be witnesses. And Peter stands up and he raises his voice and says, listen to me. Now, I call that empowering. Yeah. <laughs> or we could use the phrase emboldening. Mm-hmm. And Peter preaches that message, and it is an expositional message. There are three Old Testament passages that he is expositing as it applies to Christ in that message. And he comes down to the end of that message, verse 36, and he says, Of all that I've said to you, I want you to know all the house of Israel. I want you to know without a doubt that God has made Him, that is the risen Christ, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now I call that an invitation. And when they heard that, He didn't have to turn the music down low, dampen the lights, (laughs) give an invitation to the altar. That gospel came to them so powerfully, and this is one of the ways that you know when it has reached a person powerfully. Verse 37, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Him, What must we do? And what Peter responds to them is this. He says, verse 38, Repent. Turn from your sin to the living God. And put your faith in a risen Savior, this Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That early church had to wait for that. But when a person repents and believes, the gift of the Holy Spirit is given upon justification. 
Now this passage, Acts chapter 2, verse 38, we must acknowledge has been a very, very difficult passage for the church. And what has made it difficult is that when you read verse 38 in isolation, it sounds like what it is saying is that to be saved, you must repent and be what? And be baptized. Everybody see that? And I have had many a debate with those of Church of Christ persuasion, and there's others, who have told me, no, there are five, actually five things a person must do in order to be saved. And they always begin by repentance and baptism. <clears throat> Now, we're going to look at another passage here in just a few minutes, but I think what is very helpful for us is to recognize who is speaking this. Who's speaking this? Peter is speaking this. Everybody agree with that? Mm -hmm. Let's go and get Peter's own interpretation of what he preached. Now, if you really want to know what a person says, you go and ask them. What did you say and what did you mean? Turn to Acts chapter 10. Excuse me, Acts chapter 15. And you may just want to put a little reference up there by Acts 2.38 so that you'll forever remember this. Acts chapter 15. Here we have... The council at Jerusalem, this was actually a members meeting or a business meeting of the local New Testament church at Jerusalem. And what they are bringing before the congregation and what they are debating is whether or not a person is saved by faith in Christ plus keeping the law. And they have a great debate about this. And look at what Peter says in verse 7. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up. Now that's the one who had preached ten years earlier on the day of Pentecost. That great message. Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of what? The gospel and believe. Everybody say that right there. Then he says, verse 8, And God who knows the heart testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. Note verse 9, And he made no distinction between us and them, Cleansing their hearts by faith. Not baptism. So in verse 7 he says, you hear the word of the gospel and you believe. And in verse 9 he says, there's no distinction between the Jew and the Greek, referring probably to Cornelius. <laughs> He's cleansing their hearts not by faith and baptism, but by faith alone. 
Now look at verse 10. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test? By placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. That is the law. Verse 11. But we believe, all the apostles believe, that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also what are. Folks, Peter never mentioned what? Never mentioned baptism. So as we go back to Acts chapter 2, verse 38, it gives us warrant to translate this, and this is appropriate translation from our Greek New Testament, to read that passage this way. Brethren, what must we do? Peter says, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ because your sins have been forgiven. Not so that your sins may be forgiven, but because your sins have been given. Your hearts have been cleansed by hearing the gospel and believing that gospel. Amen. And let's just go ahead and preempt this. Turn over to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And let me just, as we're turning there, give you a little bit of my own testimony. I was saved by the grace of Christ on October the 5th, 1980. I had a dramatic conversion. I was not raised in church. I was not religious. I was as <laughs> pagan as a pagan could be. I'd been exposed to the gospel in the form of the gospel at a vacation Bible school. And I had been exposed to the form of the gospel at a Billy Graham Crusades. Outside of that, really not much exposure to the gospel at all. But through a set of circumstances and through the personal witness of a man where I worked, I came to know Christ as Lord and Savior. And I came to know Him by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Having been saved, <clears throat> this man who had given me the gospel and who was instrumental in my life, naturally, you adhere yourself to the one who gave you the gospel. And he began to teach me. And one of the things that he did after I made my profession of faith is that he took me to Acts chapter 2, verse 38. And he told me that if I truly believed that really in order to be saved, I had to be baptized. So he's not teaching me rightly, is he? But he's my mentor. And so I went to his church and I was baptized. I was actually baptized not in a nice, heated baptistry. I was actually baptized in a metal bathtub like a horse trough. They brought into the church and they filled it. And I'm going to tell you the water was freezing. <clears throat> 
And I sat in that, and they baptized me in the name of Jesus. And I got up and proceeded in my walk with Christ. Well, not knowing much of the Bible, and coming to begin to know about the Lord and the fullness of His grace and who He is, I begin to read my Bible. Reading your Bible does wonders. And for some reason, I read the book of John. That was one of the first books I read in Matthew. And for some reason, I just decided I was going to read 1 Corinthians. And I'm reading through 1 Corinthians, and I read down through chapter 1, and I'm marking in my Bible. I still have that Bible. It's been water damaged, so really 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is just red. (laughs) Because I wrote in red. But as you look here, look at what it says. Verse 13. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And of course the understood answer to that is no. Verse 14, listen to Paul. I thank God that I baptized how many of you? Whoa! I mean, if baptism's essential for salvation, you would not have an apostle saying, I thank God that I baptized none of you so that all of you are lost. <laughs> I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one will say, no one of you would say that you were baptized in my name. Now note verse 17. Verse 17 corrected my understanding. For Christ did not send me to baptize. Everybody see that? But in contrast to that, He did send me to preach the Gospel. Folks, the Gospel and baptism are distinct from one another. Baptism's not part of the Gospel. Baptism and the Gospel are distinct from each other. They're separated from each other. It's the gospel that saves. It's baptism that manifests that you have already believed and been cleansed from the gospel. Otherwise, Paul would have been going around not only preaching the gospel, but also what? Baptizing as many people as he could. Now let me put a little footnote here. That does not mean that baptism is insignificant. Many people go that direction with it. Well, baptism is not essential, then I don't need to be baptized. But I want to remind you, baptism is what characterizes a genuine disciple. And when we look at, as we go back to Acts chapter, excuse me, to Matthew chapter twenty-eight, <clears throat> as we look at the New Testament, 
what we see is something very significant. In the New Testament epistles, those epistles, not one time, has an exhortation to a church for people to be baptized. Not one. Not one epistle states that, alright, a person makes a profession of faith and you need to spend six months or so instructing them about baptism and urging them to get baptized. Not one place in your epistles. Why is that? Because, brethren, the New Testament can't even conceive of a disciple who did not follow the Lord in believer's baptism. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, it says, those who heard the Word were baptized. Everybody see that? And so that brings us to this instruction of baptism. Now, I want to say this, that we are a Baptist church, and so therefore we are teaching baptism and an understanding of baptism as we see it in the New Testament. I am a Baptist by conviction. I believe in the Baptist distinctives. One of those distinctives is baptism. And in order for us to have a valid scriptural or biblical baptism, you have to have three understandings. And I want to give you those three. You have to have a proper subject that is the one being baptized. You have to have a proper meaning what that baptism signifies and a proper mode. Those are the three things that are distinctive for Baptists. Now, other Christian denominations, even fundamental Christian denominations, conservative denominations, Presbyterian, Methodist, others, they all have differing understandings over the mode of baptism. So we just want to acknowledge that. It doesn't mean they're lost. It just means there's differences. So number one, we must understand that there must be a proper subject. What I mean by that? What I mean is, is that the one being baptized must have a credible profession of faith. We're just not randomly trying to gain attendees. We are commanded by the Lord, those, remember the commission, those who have been made disciples are baptized. (coughs) 
What would it look like for a person to say with their lips that they are a believer, but they would not have a credible profession of faith for us to baptize them? I'll just let me just give you two. If a person says, "Well, I've come to Christ, and I believe that I'm a disciple, I'm a believer, and I want to identify with Christ and with the local New Testament assembly by being baptized." and yet they're still living with someone that's not their spouse. So a man's living with another woman, a woman's living with another man. We would not baptize them until their discipleship, profession of faith, became credible by them what? Separating in that circumstance. Well, why would we do that? Because, folks, the local New Testament assembly disciplines people out of their assembly who are doing that. Why would you bring people into the assembly and then have to turn around the next meeting and then discipline them out of the assembly? You only discipline people out of the assembly that are not living credibly. Or if a person is, for instance, a railer or a drunkard. These are not credible professions. It doesn't mean that they may not be a disciple, but if they are, they will respond to teaching on that subject and want to identify themselves with a proper New Testament assembly. Sometimes people may say in connection with this, they'll say, well, you know, it's impossible to, to fully know a person's spiritual state. And that is what? That is accurate. We are fallible men. No popes around here. However, the New Testament does give certain marks of a credible profession. And where the New Testament gives those credible marks, we are to hold to them. And historically, all Baptists have agreed <clears throat> that those who do not have a proper profession of faith are not proper subjects for baptism. Now, I had made mention earlier that baptism is not insignificant. The New Testament actually, are you ready for this? Commands disciples to be baptized. In other words, it doesn't make it optional. Now, could there be circumstances that they couldn't be? And immediately you think of the thief on the cross, right? He wasn't going to, you know, Lord, remember me in your kingdom. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. He was a believer, was he not? And yet Jesus didn't say, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you down and I'm going to see you baptized. I mean, there's, there's a couple of apostles still hanging around here at the foot of this cross. And then after you get baptized and everybody knows that you've made that public profession of your faith, then we'll put you back on the cross. Mm, he didn't do that. That would be absurd. But those are rare and extenuating circumstances and again shows that we're not saved by being baptized. 
We're saved by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ alone. So the New Testament commands believers to be baptized. And in fact, when Peter preached the gospel to Cornelius and to all those who had gathered in his home, both family and slaves, and the Bible says the Holy Spirit fell on them in the middle of the message that Peter turned around and he said, all right, those of you who came with me from Jaffa, how can we forbid baptism to these of whom the Holy Spirit has come upon us just like it did with us at the day of Pentecost? Listen, next passage. And Peter ordered them to be baptized. And they were. So, disciples or believers are ordered and commanded by the New Testament to be baptized. And when you look in the New Testament, the only type of people illustrated being baptized are believers. And that brings us to this point. There is no record in the New Testament of any baby being baptized. There is no example of babies being baptized. And why would that not be? Well, a baby is not a believer and a baby can't make a credible profession of faith, right? (coughs) And in fact, for the first 150 years of the early church, There is no record of infant baptism among the early church fathers, and there's no example of infant baptism for 150 years. So this is a late development. So the very first thing that we have to have to have a biblical or a scriptural baptism is a proper subject. Who are they? those who make a credible profession of faith in Christ as Lord and Savior. Secondly, there must be a proper meaning of the baptism. In other words, the baptism must be performed with a right understanding of what's happening. Now that doesn't mean that the person being baptized has to go take a college course on baptism before they're baptized. In fact, they might not entirely understand all the nuances and all the argumentation about baptism. However, if either the one administering the baptism or the subject, the believer does not understand or it is giving a false understanding of what baptism is, that baptism is not a biblically valid baptism. And at this point, I'm going to go back to my testimony that I gave to you. When I came to know the Lord, and the Lord saved me by His grace, 
I was taught that I must be baptized in order to be saved. So when I got in that cold, cold bathtub, horse trough, and they did baptize me by immersion, their understanding of what I was doing was that I was being saved. Everybody see that? Everybody in that congregation thought that's what I was doing. The administrator of that thought that I was doing. Me, well, I was saved, but you told me I needed to be baptized, so I'm going to be what? I'm going to be baptized. In that case, the meaning of what occurred was a false understanding of baptism. So therefore, it was not a valid New Testament baptism. And some four to five years later, I'm now in a Baptist church, and having four or five years of maturity in the Scripture on me, I came under a troubled conscience. Now, I didn't know these three things that I'm telling to you, but I came under a troubled conscience that my baptism was not valid. I was called into the ministry. I was church leadership. And here I was with a troubled conscience. And I remember going to my pastor and asking, can I have a word? Can I talk to you? I I needed some help. And so we sat down. And I don't remember what he said. But I remember walking away from that thinking, I need to be baptized. Now please hear this. I didn't need to be re-baptized because my first baptism was not a New Testament baptism. I didn't need to be re-baptized. I needed to be baptized. Because the meaning of that baptism needed to be accurate. Not giving a false understanding in why I'm doing this. What actually goes on when we baptize? Well, Baptism is a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of what occurs to an individual when they are justified, when they're saved. So when we get up and we go down into the water and we don't go to a creek, we actually have a portable baptism and we go into that water, both myself and the one that's being baptized, they give their profession of faith in Christ as Lord and Savior. And then we prepare them for baptism. And what we do is we take them and immerse them. 
And we say something along these lines. Buried in the likeness of His, who remembers? Death. Raised to walk in newness of life. That is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, isn't it? And it is a picture of what happens to a sinner when they're saved. They are literally immersed into Christ's body organically and they identify with a physical representation of that body in local New Testament assemblies. When we are baptized into the body of Christ, and I say this respectfully, I'm not demeaning good brethren, we're not sprinkled into the body. We're not poured into the body. We're immersed into the body of Christ. And so, baptism functions as our identification with Christ. It functions as our identification with the body of Christ, that is the church. And it functions, this is very important, as the public profession of faith in Christ. And the emphasis is on the word public. When Peter baptized those on the day of Pentecost, they were baptized publicly. And it is the first act of Christian obedience. And you can see that in the commission. Right, brethren? Go with the purpose of making disciples, baptizing. And that's why when Peter was there before Cornelius and the Holy Spirit fell on them when they believed, he said, well, who could refuse baptism to these people? And he commanded them to be, to be baptized. And of course, he was functioning as an apostle when he did that. And again, there is no command in the New Testament epistles. There's no exhortation in the New Testament epistles. There's no encouragement in the New Testament epistles for any believer to be baptized. Why is that? Because the apostles assumed that those who were gathering into the membership of those local New Testament assemblies at Corinth, at Philippi, etc., had been what? That they had been baptized. So we have to have a proper subject. And we have to have a proper meaning. And we have to have a proper mode. And of course that brings us to really what is distinctive. Most people when they think about Baptists, they think about, well, those are people who immerse. Well, historically that has been a distinctive of Baptists. Baptists believe that baptism is by immersion in water. Now in saying that, as I've already said, we have to acknowledge that the majority of professing believers hold that baptism can be done in various ways. Can we just acknowledge that? In fact, they really don't see the mode as very important at all. 
There are good people, believing people who sprinkle. There are believing people who pour. There are believing people who go in and you're actually immersed three times. You're immersed for the Father, you're immersed for the Son, you're immersed for the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> there's people who baptize by leaning forward. There's people who are baptized by going backwards. I mean, there's all kinds of just differences and variations in this type of thing. But Baptists do believe, because of the pattern of the New Testament, that proper New Testament baptism is baptism, baptism by immersion. Now, why do we see it this way? Well, first of all, it's because of the meaning of the Greek word baptizo. That Greek word strictly means to immerse. That's what the word means. You can look it up in a Greek dictionary. It means to immerse. When you look at literature, Greek literature outside the New Testament, it means the exact same thing. When secular Greeks, pagan Greeks, used the word baptized, they were using it in the sense of being immersed. Consequently, we read Jesus' command to baptize as a command to immerse. And as I noted before, for 150 years, there is no record of anything other than immersion. And really, immersion, and I refer to this, does symbolize the death, burial, and resurrection. Immersion adequately gives the picture of a burial. And of course, you know that if you've been to a funeral, <clears throat> I'm not talking about a cremation, but a bodily burial, they take that body and they lower it into the what? Into the grave. And they put dirt on it. They immerse that body into the earth. Second question is, <clears throat> who has the authority to baptize? And the answer to that question is simple. It is the church that has the authority to baptize. Baptism is not a private activity. It's a public activity. And it's a public activity not merely for unbelieving people. It is a public activity before the gathering of a church. It's the church that is giving witness to what is happening in that public declaration of faith in Christ. Now, can lost people come and watch? The answer to that is what? Of course, yes. But primarily, it's for God, a public compression of faith, for God and His Son and His church. Baptism should not be done in non-church settings. Camps, probably the most prominent times that people do this is when they take a trip to the Holy Land. And they're like, oh, 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 I'm here at Jordan. And 
John the Baptist baptized in Jordan. And oh, I, I just want to do it like he did it. And so they go in and be baptized. But folks, how many times do you get saved? <laughs> you only get saved once, right? And so you should be scripturally baptized only, only once. <coughs> so who has the authority to baptize? The answer to that is the church. Just like the commission has been delivered to the church, not to any one individual. And in most churches, it's normally a pastor who administers the baptism. Now, there is some differences about this, but I don't think the New Testament explicitly states that a pastor has to do it. However, if someone, the, a congregation, when they call a pastor, normally, you'll read in the Constitution, they've been given the authority to administer baptism. Could a church give authority, say, to a father to baptize their own children publicly before the church? The answer is yes. A church could give authority to do that. And so, even though a pastor normally does it, I don't think here, I'm trying to think, I don't think in all the baptisms in the two churches that I pastored, there's been anything other but it could if the church authorized another member of that church to do the baptism. So folks, as we conclude, and we're looking at Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19, that commission was originally given to the apostles. The apostles delivered the commission according to Paul in 1 Corinthians to local New Testament assemblies. And so the great commission is the means by which God's eternal purpose is being fulfilled in every generation, which means that His eternal purposes are ultimately being fulfilled within New Testament assemblies. And we are to go purposefully, every member declaring and confessing Christ and His excellencies to everyone that is around us. And those who are made disciples through the preaching of the gospel, they're saved, are to be baptized. It is a command to do that. And those who are being baptized identify not only with Christ, but identify with a local New Testament assembly in which, and we'll look at here in a couple of weeks, being taught to observe all that Jesus commanded them. That's just a beautiful illustration, isn't it? Of how this functions in the church age. You must have a proper subject, you must be conveying the proper meaning and you must have the proper mode. So brethren, we've got to ask this question. If you are someone 
who professes to be a disciple of Christ. You may not know the exact date and even hour like I do. But you know that you have been made a disciple and perhaps you can narrow it down to within a few years or so. And for whatever reason, maybe neglect or maybe misunderstanding, maybe just not really giving it the consideration that you need to give it, maybe you haven't been assured that you're really a disciple or not, for whatever reason, now you've come to that understanding. I am a disciple of Christ. You have turned from darkness to light. You've turned from Christ to Jesus as Lord and Savior. You're resting only in His merit, only in His righteousness, no merit of my own. And you have, in some fashion, called on the name of Jesus Christ the Lord to save you. And you have evidence of life, then the next step is to give a public confession of that. Not merely just telling your friends or family or you know, but a public confession of that faith in being baptized into the identification with Christ and the identification with His body, the church. This is part of our confession. And what does the Scripture say? If you would confess with your mouth that's what we do when we baptize people. If you would confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised from the dead, you shall be, you shall be saved. Okay? You believed in your heart. You confess with your mouth. I do believe Jesus Christ is Lord. He is now my God. I am a learner follower of Him. All right, learn of him about baptism and then do what? Follow him. Folks, even our Lord, it wasn't a Christian baptism, but even our Lord identified with the house of Israel by allowing John the Baptist to what? To baptize him. And so should we. Let's pray together.